Yeah, let's take our Bibles this morning. Let's turn to Acts chapter 26. <clears throat> Acts 26 this morning, and let's just read from verse 24, and then we'll open with a word of prayer. Acts 26 verse 24 says, And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. Let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we... Thank you, Lord, once again for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come to spend some time around your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us and instruct us through your word, that, Lord, uh, we might learn of you this morning. Lord, pray that you would empower me through the Spirit now, that it would be your words, it would be your thoughts. And that, Lord, uh, we would leave having been refreshed and blessed by your word and singing your praises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last Sunday evening, of course, we saw Paul brought before King Agrippa and the other dignitaries who were there as well. And he was brought forth and he was given license to speak freely by King Agrippa and Paul He didn't waste that opportunity. Paul took that opportunity with both hands, if you like, and he proceeded to give in great detail his testimony. Now, he began with his zeal as a Pharisee persecuting the Christians, and he went through to the point where on the road to Damascus, the Lord met him and the Lord changed him. And then he spoke about how God had commissioned him to now preach the gospel unto all people. And how with God's help he'd been faithful to that mission until this day that he's standing before King Agrippa. And Paul concluded by pointing out to Agrippa that his message, everything he said, agrees with the Old Testament scriptures. He says in verse 22, he says, Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses said should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And so he he says, everything I've said agrees with the Old Testament. And he says, and Jesus Christ fulfills the Old Testament. He is the Messiah. He fulfills the, the scriptures speaking about his death and about his resurrection, and the fact that he will be light unto uh, all people, bring the light of salvation unto all. When Paul gets to this point in his testimony, he's interrupted by Festus. And this is where we finished last Sunday evening with Festus's interruption here. And this is where we want to pick up our uh, message this morning, pick up the story this morning. And we want to focus our attention on the reactions of these two men to Paul's testimony. The reactions of these two men to Paul's testimony. First of all, we see the reaction of Festus. Verse 24, as we read before, it says, And and as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. 
As I said, he gets to the point in his testimony where he's reached the resurrection. And in particular, he's talking about the, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. He gets to this point in his testimony, and it's now that uh, Paul is interrupted. He's really at the climax of his defense, isn't he? At the climax of his message. He's got to the point that he wants to get across, that Christ, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he did die, he was buried, and rose again. And it's at this point that he's now interrupted by Festus. You know, the resurrection, as we said before, was something the Romans couldn't comprehend. They couldn't understand. It was contrary to his way of thinking. And so when Paul gets to this point, he speaks up with a loud voice, interrupting Paul. It says there in verse 24, And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice. So he speaks uh, very loudly, if you like, over, over top of Paul, interrupting and silencing Paul so that he is heard here. He speaks loudly. And he accuses Paul here of being beside himself. He says, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Now, the Greek word that's used here is the word mania. And it means someone who's raving mad. It's where we get our English word maniac from. And that's what he's calling Paul here. He says, Paul, you're a maniac. He says, you're a raving lunatic. You know, you're insane. He basically thinks Paul is speaking irrationally here. And so he speaks out, he silences Paul, and he says, you're a maniac. And this response stems from, as I mentioned before, his Roman upbringing. That's where this comes from. It's from his Roman upbringing. Now, the Romans, like the Greeks, didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. And so for Paul to be speaking about a bodily resurrection and to be, you know, a Um, claiming that Christ has already risen from the dead, this was something that was just absurd to Festus. He can't understand it. He can't comprehend it. You know, back in chapter 25, Festus had already made it clear that he believed that Jesus was simply a dead man and that it's Paul who affirmed that he's alive. Look back there in chapter 25 and uh, verse 19. Chapter 25, verse 19, it says, But had certain questions against him of their own superstition and of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. The way it's written there, basically, Festus, he says he's dead. Paul's claiming him to be alive, and we talked about that. When he says Paul affirmed him to be alive, he's, he's almost speaking with derision about Paul and about his claim that Christ is alive. And that comes over now into chapter 26, doesn't it? Verse 24, is he speaks up and he says, Paul, you're a maniac. You're mad. You see, to him, this whole idea was foolishness. And, you know, Festus attributes Paul's madness to his learning. He says there at the end of verse 24, much learning doth make thee mad. He says, Paul, it's all this learning that you're doing. You know, he acknowledges that Paul is a very learned man, you know, and he's a, he's a scholar, he's, he's studied a lot, he knows a lot about the scriptures, he knows a lot about these things. He says, Paul, it's all that learning, it's all that studying, it's sent you mad, it's warped your judgments. You see, to him, he couldn't understand how Paul, as a Roman, remember Paul's a Roman citizen, he couldn't understand how Paul, as a Roman, would believe such things. How could a sensible Roman citizen believe such madness? And furthermore, 
How could a sane person antagonize a whole nation by claiming such things? You've got to put yourself in Festus' shoes here, don't you? Okay, his upbringing, that there's no such thing as a resurrection. And then the fact that, you know, Paul by this is antagonizing the whole Jewish nation. He's looking at him thinking, you're insane. What's the point of all this? It's foolishness. It's madness. You see, to him, the preaching of the death, the burial and resurrection of Christ was nothing but foolishness. He exhibited the exact attitude that Paul would write about later on in 1 Corinthians, didn't he? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's just quickly turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Paul wrote about this very attitude, this idea that the preaching of the cross is foolishness. And in Festus we see that attitude, don't we? We see that attitude towards the cross, towards the resurrection towards the whole gospel message. He views it as foolishness. You know, sadly, this is the attitude of many in the world today, isn't it? Many in the world today are just like Festus. You know, when they hear the gospel message, they laugh it off as being ridiculous, as being absurd, as being foolishness. And you see, like Festus, it stems from their wisdom, doesn't it? Man's wisdom, the wisdom of the world. You see, the prevailing belief in the world today is that there is no life after the grave. That is the prevailing belief of the world. And so for us then to preach that there is life after the grave is foolishness. It doesn't fit with their way of thinking. You know, as we therefore proclaim the simple gospel message that Christ died for the sins of mankind, that he was buried and rose again so that we might have eternal life, we will at times find that like Paul, we're labeled as mad. We will be laughed at. The gospel message will be laughed at and ridiculed. It shouldn't be surprising. And you know, when that happens, we're in good company, aren't we? Not only with the Apostle Paul, but we're also in good company with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 10, verse 20, they labeled him as being mad. Go there, John 10. In John 10 and verse 19, we'll start there. It says, There was a division therefore again among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, He hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? They thought Christ was a lunatic. They view what he was teaching as madness. And so when the world reacts like this to us as we preach the cross we're in good company and indeed the preaching of the cross is foolishness to the world you know as we read on in our passage now we see that paul is very polite in his response to festus look there in verse 25 it says but he said i am not mad most noble festus but speak forth the words of truth and soberness paul as always is very Uh, polite in the way he responds to officials he says most noble festus but he asserts here to festus he says i'm not mad he says i'm not mad i'm not uh, crazy i'm not a lunatic as you think i am he says but rather i speak forth the words of truth and soberness you see far from being wild and speculative speculative paul's teaching was the truth it was backed up by the facts 
by well-known facts. And he's going to state that in verse 26. We'll look at it in a minute, but let's just read it. Verse 26, he says, For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely, for I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. We'll look at it in a minute, but he asserts, he says, these things weren't done in a corner. These are well-known events, the death of Christ. The, the resurrection is well-known. It's well-attested and known by all. And Paul says, he says, I'm speaking the truth backed up by the facts. But not only that, he says that he's speaking soberness. Now, this word soberness comes from a compound word in the Greek, and it means sound mind. He says, I'm speaking with a sound mind. He says, I haven't lost control of my mind here. I'm not a lunatic. He says, everything I'm saying comes from a sound mind. He's speaking rationally. And basically, Paul is declaring that the Christian faith here is a rational belief based upon historical facts. That's what it is. It's a rational belief. It's not madness. It's not... You know, skeptical, it is a rational belief based upon the facts. And so like Paul, we can with confidence preach the gospel message, can't we? We can preach with confidence knowing it to be true, knowing the whole of God's word to be true. You know, men might try to disprove the facts of the gospel message, to disprove the, the Bible, and many have tried, haven't they? But they can't. That's the reality. They can't disprove the Bible. They can't find holes. They can't find flaws in the Word of God because it is truth and it does line up with the facts. And so they might call us mad, but the reality is that we speak the truth supported by historical evidence. It's a rational belief. You know, Christ did indeed come to earth. Christ did indeed die he was indeed buried and he did indeed rise again and there's hundreds of witnesses to that fact and so the gospel message is indeed truth and soberness you know one commentator wrote this he said in response to the common sense dismissals of the faith as insanity we must call for the for patience and for a judicious assessment of the facts christians have nothing to fear from such scrutiny. Indeed, we believe because of, not in spite of the facts. We have nothing to fear by men putting a microscope you know, over the Word of God and searching and looking everywhere. We have nothing to fear. They're not going to find a flaw. And so we are quite happy to preach the truth, proclaim the truth, and let men examine it. Let them put it to scrutiny. Let them test the facts. Because we believe because of the facts, not in spite of them. Our faith is one from a sound mind. And with this declaration, Paul now turns and he appeals to Agrippa for support. Look in verse 26. He says, For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. Paul now looks to King Agrippa, and he declares, he says, King Agrippa knows all these things I'm talking about. He says, you're calling me mad, but King Agrippa himself, he knows that what I'm saying is the truth. He knows these facts. You see, Paul was confident that none of these things were hidden from the king. 
that none of these things were done in a corner. They weren't hidden. They weren't done in secret. This was public knowledge for all to hear, for all to know. The ministry of Christ here on earth and indeed his death was public knowledge. It was common knowledge. And you know, his resurrection, as I said before, was also a well-reported fact. You know, Agrippa, he probably even knew what his father and his grandfather had done. The role that they had played in uh, the persecution of Christ and his followers. He would have known everything, all their interactions with Christ and his followers. So the point is, he can't deny the historical facts, can he? He knows these things. He knows these things and he knows how they line up with what Paul has been saying about the scriptures. The commentator Bruce writes, Anyone who believed the prophets and compared their predictions with the historical facts concerning Jesus of Nazareth must acknowledge the truth of Christianity. And that's what Paul's trying to get at here as he turns to the king and he puts the spotlight on the king. He says, he knows all these things I'm saying are true. He, he knows all this. It's common knowledge. And he says, and he knows it lines up with the prophets. And that's what he goes on to in verse 27. He says, King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. He's driving home the point here to Agrippa. He says, Agrippa, do you believe the prophets do you believe what's written in the old testaments he's basically saying do you believe what they write about the messiah which paul has just referred to hasn't he about the death of the burial and bringing light unto all men the light of salvation he says do you believe what they say about the messiah and then immediately paul answers for him he says i know that thou believest paul expresses his confidence that agrippa does believe the scriptures And he was confident that Agrippa would acknowledge that what he was saying was not madness, it was not insane. And his hope and his prayer was that Agrippa would make the connection between the Old Testament scriptures and Christ as his Messiah. And he would make that connection between Jesus and the prophecies. Now it's as if Paul is saying, since you believe the prophets and the prophets point to the Messiah, can't you see that Jesus fulfills those prophecies he's saying king make the connection he's he's pleading with him here make the connection now and sadly agrippa's response here is a disappointing one it's a disappointing response and that's the second point this morning we see the response or the reaction of king agrippa look there in verse 28 it says then agrippa said unto paul almost thou persuadest me to be a christian We know these words well, don't we? This is King Agrippa's response. He says, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Now this response here has been the subject of much debate as to what the exact meaning is. I didn't really know that until I studied it out this week. There is debate about what this means here. You see, the word translated almost here means few or small, little. And it refers to something that's little in size, something that's few in number or brief in respect to time that's what this word is talking about and so the phrase literally reads in a little you are persuading me to be a christian that's how it reads in the greek in a little you are persuading me to be a christian 
But the question revolves around how Agrippa uttered these words. How did he say it? You know, was Agrippa being sincere here? Was he implying that he actually was affected by Paul's presentation of the gospel and that he was therefore close to becoming a Christian? And indeed, that's the reading we have here in our Bibles, isn't it? That's, that's how it reads here in the King James. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. But you know, there is another point of view that he's been sarcastic here or being scornful and that he's not moved at all by Paul's message. And in which case, he's simply seeking to dodge the implications of Paul's message here. And amongst the commentators, it's agreed that it's a difficult passage to translate. But nearly all the modern commentators and the modern translators, they all believe that this statement is said in a sarcastic and scornful way, which, as I said, I didn't know until I studied it out this week. This is the opinion of many, that Agrippa was not close at all to becoming a Christian, but rather he is simply being evasive. They translate it as follows. They translate it as, in short, you are trying to make me play the Christian. You know, Agrippa's just passing it off. He says, you're just trying to make me play the Christian, act the part of a Christian to convince Festus. Others translate it as a question. You know, they read it as, do you, do you really think, Paul, that in a short amount of time you're going to convince me to be a Christian? Or with such trivial, trivial evidence, do you expect me to become a Christian? And so the thought is that Agrippa's being sarcastic, treating the matter lightly, you know, perhaps even belittling Paul's witness. And that is the opinion of many of the modern commentators and the modern translators. However, this expression is broad enough to be translated, to be understood as a genuine declaration of conviction. And this is certainly how our translators understood the passage. That's why they've translated it like this. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. They were convinced that... Agrippa here was being sincere. You know, this reading suggests to us that the gospel message has had an impact upon Agrippa and is causing him to weigh up the evidence of what Paul has said. He's close to making that decision. And indeed, when we consider the overall context, I believe that this fits best with the passage. This fits best with the context of everything else. And there's a number of reasons that I say that. You know, first of all, Agrippa's discussion later on with Festus and the other dignitaries at the end of the passage makes it clear to us that far from dismissing Paul's words, he actually takes Paul very seriously. You look there in verse 30. It says, And when they had thus spoken, the king rose up, and their governor, and Bernice, and they that sat with them, and when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, this man doth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Then said Agrippa under Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed under Caesar. You know, he's talking here in private to Festus and the others, and he's saying Paul's innocent. He's taking Paul's words seriously, isn't he? Now as he's talking in private, surely if he's ridiculing and being scornful of Paul in public, behind closed doors he's going to be even further. In that, in that way inclined. But here he's taking Paul's words serious. He's not dismissing Paul's words. He's taking them seriously. He doesn't laugh him off in private. 
He declares that Paul has proven himself to be innocent and that he shouldn't be locked up. He should, in fact, be set free. And so he certainly took Paul's testimony as being serious, didn't he? But then there's also Paul's response to Agrippa in verse 29. You know, Paul says, uh, And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day, were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. You know, Paul's response to Agrippa in verse 29 again suggests that Paul himself believed Agrippa was serious. Now, his response, he uses the same word, almost, and he's saying, I wish you were more than just almost, but you were as I am, that you were convinced. And so Paul seems to be taking his response seriously as well. And so if Paul took it seriously, I believe we should be taking it seriously as well. This is a serious response from Agrippa. Now, the commentator Clark, he wrote this, He said, how could it have entered into the mind of any man who carefully considered the circumstances of the case to suppose that these words of Agrippa are spoken ironically is to me unaccountable. Every circumstance in the case proves them to have been the genuine outpouring of a heart persuaded of the truth and only prevented from fully acknowledging it by secular considerations now Clark's pretty blunt he says how could you ever arrive at that conclusion there's only one conclusion when you study the context and you study the the circumstance of the case there's only one conclusion that the gripper is being genuine here in his response to Paul and so it seems clear to me that the translation we've got here is just fine and that it fits the passage perfectly it expresses a gripper's frame of mind you know, essentially, he says to Paul, he says that the, the evidence that Paul has presented is, is close to convincing him. He's close to becoming a Christian. You know, having listened to Paul's testimony and listened to Paul's declaration that Jesus is the Jews' Messiah, that he is Agrippa's Messiah, Agrippa has been convicted. He's been convicted. He's, he's weighing up the evidence in his mind. He's almost persuaded. You know, what kept him from making that final step of faith? Well, most likely it's the fear of rejection. It's the fear of rejection and ridicule from those assembled, and it's the fear of rejection and ridicule from the Jews. I mean, the Jews hate Paul. The last thing Agrippa wants is the Jews to hate him. He doesn't want to get offside with them. And so all these things are weighing on his mind. You know, sadly today, many respond just like Agrippa, don't they, to the gospel message. They're almost persuaded by the truth. But for fear of what others might think, they turn away. In Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, we read, The fear of men bringeth a snare. But whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. The fear of men is a snare. It really is a snare to to people coming to the truth. It, It holds them back, that fear of men. But you know, for others, the The snare is the cares of life, isn't it? It's the cares of life. The love of the world, the love of its sinful pleasures that keeps men from making that that step of faith. You know, sadly, as the song states, and we're going to sing it at the end, almost cannot avail. Almost is but to fail. Sad, sad, that bitter wail, almost but lost. Almost is not close enough, is it? 
It doesn't save you. Almost is not enough to save. And that's the sad response that we have here from King Agrippa and the sad response we face from many to the gospel message. You know, Paul is quick to respond to Agrippa in verse 29. Let's read it again. It says, And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. Paul's earnest desire, his earnest prayer for Agrippa and indeed all the other dignitaries who were present was that they would indeed be more than just almost persuaded. But they would be fully persuaded that in in time they would come to the truth. His desire, his prayer was that they would in faith be saved. He desired them to have what he had. He says, except these bonds. He says, I want you to have what I have except these bonds. You know, you could see Paul holding up his chains. Saying, I want you to be in the same state I am. The knowledge that you're saved, you're on your way to heaven. You're, You're free from your sin. But I don't want you to be in this state of bonds. This state of prison. This is a passionate plea here from Paul, isn't it? A passionate plea to all these dignitaries to stop holding back and make this decision of faith. And with that, Agrippa now rises up and he signals that the meeting's adjourned and they go out and they discuss the case. Let's just read again from verse 30. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose up and the governor and Bernice and they that sat with them When they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, This man doeth nothing worthy of bonds, uh, sorry, death or of bonds. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. They go out and they discuss the case. From the conversation, it's clear that they've been impressed by what Paul has said. The consensus is that Paul has done nothing worthy of death or even of being in bonds, being in prison. You know, Agrippa goes as far as to say to Festus, he says, if you hadn't appealed unto Caesar, we could let him go. There's no reason for him to be in prison. But because Paul has made that appeal, his fate is sealed. You know, Paul is now about to board a ship in chapter 27, as we'll see tonight. He's about to, to board a ship and begin his journey to Rome. You know, this morning we've seen two men who have two very common responses to the gospel message you know festus responded by calling paul mad viewing the gospel message as foolishness and agrippa responded by saying almost thou persuadest me you know the sad truth is that both men in their own way rejected the gospel message didn't they they rejected the truth and they were lost and beloved we will encounter both responses as we preach the truth we will We will encounter these responses. We can't let it discourage us. You know, Paul certainly didn't let it discourage him, did he? After hearing these responses, he he just says, I pray that you'll come to the truth. He continued to pray for them. I'm sure that Paul, that whole journey to Rome, and the whole time he's in Rome, he continued to pray for these dignitaries and their salvation. He didn't let it discourage him. He continued to pray for them. You know, likewise, we must continue to be faithful continue to pray for those that we that we witness to that god would soften their hearts and that in time they might come to the truth let's close in a word of prayer dear lord and heavenly father we thank you for your word once again lord in 
Festus and in King Agrippa, we see two very common responses, Lord, that we face even today to the gospel message. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not let those responses discourage us, but help us to continue to be faithful and bold in proclaiming the gospel message. Lord, help us to pray for, the, for your spirit to be convicting those souls, convicting men, and bringing them to the truth. May you give us opportunities even this week to share our faith. Lord, may you go before us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>